turn in your Bible, follow along on your device, but engage with the passage for sure because it's living and inspired and powerful and uh, it's what we need to uh, hear from. Hebrews 4, beginning with verse number 1, the Bible says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest any anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Father, thank you for the promise of rest, and thank you for the way to enter it and I pray that you will speak to us about that today God that we'll be able to hear you and Holy Spirit we trust you we thank you for your word we pray Father that your power would be revealed in the preaching of the word and God in our obedience and our adjusting our lives to you in faith and we pray this all in Christ's name amen I appreciate very much last week uh, Jonathan preaching and he uh, made it look easy to preach with like two hours of preparation, and uh, he did a great job. It's definitely not easy, and uh, I'm grateful for that. And it's weird, but um, I'm also grateful for the opportunity to have rested some because um, sometimes, like I was sick for sure. I felt bad Saturday when we were having fall festival, and the next day had fever, of course, and, and um but sometimes it's just good to rest, and so I enjoyed this week, believe it or not, even though I didn't enjoy having fever and being sick, I did enjoy having the opportunity to rest, and so this passage speaks about a, a different kind of rest, I think, and uh, it will be helpful for us to think about what, what the uh, Scripture is trying to say to us. We keep seeing over and over again the idea that Jesus is better, that's what we said is the overarching theme of Hebrews, and here... The comparison is only made one time, but it's made to uh, from Jesus to Joshua. Joshua is actually Jesus' namesake in the Bible, or Jesus is Joshua's namesake. It was the same name, and it meant for us Jehovah's salvation. But historically, Joshua, we know, was the successor to Moses. He was mentored by Moses, and he was uh, he listened. And he recorded the things that Moses said. And he was faithful in his generation. And he entered into the land of promise, he and only Caleb. And you remember how we saw before everybody under 59 years uh, of age 
got to go in, but all the disobedient generation didn't get to enter into the land of Canaan uh, and to experience God's best for them. That's what we were thinking about before. So Joshua is compared to Jesus, and Joshua is said to have left the people still not completely experiencing the rest that God intended. There was a rest that he had in mind. When you read this passage, what you see is that the word rest appears 11 times. I always think that's God being emphatic. When something is repeated again and again and again, God is being emphatic, and he's trying to drive home to us an important reality. And so what is that rest? That's what we want to think about. What does he infer? What does he mean when he talks about a kind of rest that the people of God didn't experience even under Joshua, even though they went into Canaan? They went into Canaan, but he says still there remained a rest. There was a different kind of rest. And that's the one we want to uncover in this passage. You know, sometimes when people think about uh, who God is, they will say something like, I'm not very religious. I'm not very religious. And maybe you've heard people say that, and I always think, well, good, I'm not religious either. Not in the way that you probably mean. If by religious you mean that the kind of faith system you have is negative and prohibitive, and only speaks about things you can't do, I'm not religious either, and I'm glad not to be. In fact, when we think about Jesus' ministry, what you notice about Jesus' ministry is that he's always in conflict with religious people. When you read the Gospels, it's only the religious people that Jesus is constantly in conflict with. And there's a reason for that. For example, with the Pharisees, He called them names. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. That's not very nice. Whitewashed tombs. He says, you make a good appearance, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. Everything looks great on the outside, he says, but inwardly, no. You don't have it together. Religion is exhausting exhausting when we think about have I done enough have I exercised all of the requirements that God has so that he'll finally say good enough that's exhausting and Jesus opposed that kind of religious idea in scripture you remember he tells a story about two people that went up to the temple to pray One of them was a Pharisee. And the Bible says he prayed thus with himself is the way it puts it. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. He says, I give and I stay away from the bad things that you wouldn't want me to do. And I'm generous. And he says, and I thank you especially that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And and the tax collector, the Bible says, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but stood and smote his breast in an act of contrition and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that he went up to his house justified, but not the other man. When we think about what religion is, it's, it is exhausting but it's, it puts the focus on perception rather than the internal reality. And 
Religion tends to look outward at the mess around us rather than inward at the mess within us. You know, that's what religious people are like. We condemn the world, we look around us, everything's horrible, but we never slow down and say, what about me? What am I like? What do I need? And so religion condemns and is negative, and, but that's not what the Scripture is talking about when it discusses what is on God's heart for human beings at all. When Jesus talked about what he was like, and what he commended to others, this is what he, he said. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Not religion. He didn't say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Let me make it worse. That's not what he said. He says, I will give you something different. I'll give you rest. Come to me, I'll give you rest. And so when the Bible clarifies for us what God's concerned about in his quest with people, that's where he lands. He says, I want you to have rest. I want you to experience not religion, but but rest. And so in this passage, what we want to do is look at two questions, I think, that that it poses for us. And the first one is simply, what is rest? When the Bible talks about rest, what does it mean here? When it repeatedly says that these rebellious people didn't enter into rest, however, the offer of rest is still available to anyone, which is what the text says. It says it was available, they didn't avail themselves to it, they didn't accept it, and yet, over and over again, the offer of rest is, is there for us. So, what does he mean? the writer here when he talks about rest it's clear that he doesn't mean just life in the promised land he doesn't mean that he means something else so rest is in scripture we see a repeated promise over and over again it's made the people were offered rest they in joshua's time in moses time it was offered to them that's what the passage indicates to us And God keeps commending his rest in successive todays. Do you notice that? That here in the passages that we've read before, like sandwiched in here, it keeps saying that God says to us today, and it's citing uh, the psalmist, if you won't harden your heart, he says. He he says, you're being made an offer And we can respond to it either by hardening our heart in disobedience or by opening our our heart. But it is successively, continually offered. It was offered in their day. You didn't have to enter the promised land to have it. But if you had it, you'd enter the promised land. That idea of rest that was being made as an offer from God. And so it was addressed to the people that were there. It's addressed to the people that were the community of Faith that the writer of Hebrews has in mind. And then over and over again, including now, today, the offer of rest is made. And, and so it is a repeated promise in the Bible. What we also notice is that it's the basis of rest when we understand all that Hebrews is saying is Jesus' atoning work. How does a person have rest? Well, we trust that Jesus did for us totally and finally and completely 
everything that's required to take off of us the burden and pressure of religious performing. Isn't that good news? It's called good news in the Bible. That's what it's called. And he says in this passage too, it's repeatedly proclaimed to you this good news. It was good news to them. The good news is that God was doing for them what they couldn't do for them themselves. So it's the basis of rest is Jesus' atoning work. Rest is putting the full weight of our sin on Jesus. That's rest. And the Bible says over and over again, the problem with humans is that all of us sin and come short of the glory of God. And there's not one righteous, not, not even one. And that we need an answer to that problem. And that Jesus is the answer. He's the Messiah, the solution, who came here to take on himself the problem of our sin and to atone for us. And so rest is putting the full weight of our sin onto Jesus and trusting that that's good enough. It's totally and completely enough. That's what God says. Isn't that a relief? Isn't that better than trying to live a perfect life day after day because you know you can't do it? Waking up and trying again and trying again and maybe I'll get it right eventually. But your history doesn't say that you will. So the, it's much better to put the full weight of my sin on the perfect one, the one who perfected life. He came and lived a perfect life. Rest is putting the full weight of every anxious thought on Jesus. Boy, we're anxious. And, and the Bible says that we can come to him and put our anxieties on him so that he takes our anxiety and our our thoughts and surrounds our minds with peace rest is believing God even when we don't know what how it's going to work out that was over and over again true of the people of God consistently they were encountering problems like crossing uh, the Red Sea not knowing oh, the armies you know Chasing us here, what do we do? Being hungry, being thirsty. And over and over again, all God does is come through. So rest is the capacity to say, God, this is problematic. However, based on the stories of other people and my own experience, I trust that you're going to come through. So rest is believing God even when we don't know how it's going to work out. Rest comes from knowing that everything doesn't depend on me and knowing the one upon whom everything depends. I'm glad it doesn't all depend on me. There are times I'm completely perplexed, overwhelmed. On the other hand, I do know the one upon whom everything depends. That's a relief. Rest is breathing sometimes. And rest... The word is very interesting, the Greek word that comes into English. It has this word in it, P-A-U-S-E, pause. Just stopping, interrupting ourselves, breathing. Rest is exhibited in gratitude and worship. How do I know that I'm resting in him? Well, is the experience of your life that you're a worshiper and a grateful human? 
I've shared this before, but uh, somebody said that um, ingratitude is the halitosis of the soul. I like that. Ingratitude is the halitosis of the soul. A grateful person is a person who's in touch with God and has the ability to say thank you (laughs) and not live like a miserable wretch all the time. So how do I know I'm resting? Well, am I a grateful, worshiping human? Basically, am I the opposite of what the people were like in the wilderness? Because we've seen how they never come to a place of complete trust in God, even though God comes through over and over again. Never have the capacity to go, wow, maybe he'll do it again. And they complain and murmur, and they murmur against their leaders, and they're never content, and they strive with God. Rest is ceasing from our works as an approach to God. The person, uh, the passage says here, who enters into his rest has ceased from his own works. And it's interesting that that would always confound us. But it's confounding to people over and over again the, the fact that I have to take my performance out and consider that God has accepted me in, in Christ and rest in that and trust in it. But a person who has, is experiencing rest is, has ceased to work as an approach to God. Rest in, in Scripture is a hopeful direction. It's to be surrounded by the experience of hope. Rest is a long vacation from working our spiritual fingers to the bone. Sometimes I think that's we still have that sort of a performance mindset. And rest is recognizing the fact that we, we trust in God who's at work around us. Rest is the consequence of obedience. When we think about what rest is in the Bible, it's the consequence of obedience. A person who is consistently concerned to obey God and follow God is a person who experiences his rest also. So it's the consequences of obedience. It shows up in the life of a consistently faithful person. Rest is paradoxical because we must be diligent to enter into it. That's what the Bible says here. How do I experience rest? It says, the the last thing it says is, be diligent to enter into it. So on the one hand, we think, well, it's relaxing into what God's doing for me. On the other hand, there's the consistent undertone of warning in this passage, and really in all Hebrews. It says, beware, lest any of you seem to come short of this kind of rest that we're talking about in this passage. So rest is the opposite of frenetic activity. And Mary and Martha illustrate that. Remember the story of how Jesus has these friends that he comes to know in Bethany. And it says the first time he knew them, came to know them, he and his disciples were on the way and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. 
Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her, Jesus says. Rest is an antidote to harried, hurried, religious doing. And in fact, if you wanted a simple explanation of what rest is, I would say it is the opposite of religion. It's the opposite. It's not what people normally think of uh, faith. So the Bible says uh, rest is the opposite kind of of religion. Religion is always undone and uh, incomplete. But rest is final in the sense that the passage means because it stops sweating about whether what we've done is enough. At some point, that's what faith really comes down to is we stop all our effort and energy and we give it all to Jesus who's done everything already for us and given himself for for us. The rest in person trust that Jesus is enough. So when we look at this passage, those are some ideas about what rest means. But the second question from this text to think about is how do we enter that rest? How do we enter it? If the Bible says this is God's ideal, not religion, but rest, then how do we enter it? Well, the scripture makes it plain that an aspect of this is seriousness. We enter into that rest through seriousness because the scripture says here, let us fear lest any of us seem to come short of it. You probably have seen people post that uh, the idea of don't not, don't fear appears like 365 times in the Bible. I, I looked that up one time, and it's 200 and I don't know 70 something. I can't remember. But the idea "do not fear" appears often enough in the Scripture that we know God is saying, "Hey, shouldn't be afraid, shouldn't be anxious, shouldn't be overwhelmed." On the other hand, here the Bible says, "What? Let us." fear, lest any of us seem to uh, come short of this kind of rest that the Bible has in mind. So what is that kind of fear, a healthy kind that God would come in? On the one hand, he says, don't be anxious, don't be overwhelmed, don't let all life's problems make you think that it's out of control and I don't have a handle. But here the Bible says, let us fear. There's a healthy kind of fear that the Bible is recommending to us, and I think what it means is uh, cultivating a life that's attentive to God that's healthy fear it's the fact that your life is characterized by prayer how do I know that I'm a reverent devout person well we'll be people who take time to pray we pause we pray we encounter God it's not a person who treats God casually or flippantly for certain So when the Bible says, let us fear, it's suggesting to us the idea that God is of utmost importance to this kind of human, this person, who uh, responds correctly to what he hears in the good news. What good is it if I heard but I didn't heed? And the Bible says that when we read James, he says, faith without works is dead, of no use. So we 
enter into the kind of rest that God commends through seriousness. Healthy reverence keeps me from compartmentalizing my life. If we have the kind of life that, like, this is a part of it, this Sunday part, that I come together with other people, but then the rest of my life when I go away from here resembles, it's not influenced by or affected by what I did there on Sunday morning. It's indication that we don't have the kind of healthy fear the Bible recommends to us. If the kind of life, so you keep seeing this contrast and this paradox, that's really what it is because on the one hand, I rest in Christ alone on the other hand, my life has markers and indications of the fact that I belong to him. So the healthy kind of fear that it suggests helps me be comfortable in all kinds of situations because I'm not trying to be what I'm not. I can be myself wherever I go because the self I am is a worshiping self. It's not one thing here and something else somewhere else. And so... How do we enter rest? Through seriousness. And then the passage repeatedly says that the missing, the deficient part of the Israelites in this historical story, this narrative that we get is that they didn't, it wasn't, what they heard wasn't mixed with faith in them. So through faith, through seriousness, through faith. It wasn't mixed with faith and faith. What is, when we think about biblical faith, it's uh, more than accumulating religious information. Not just accumulating religious information. So lots of us had that. I did. My grandfather was a pastor. I probably shared that. He was a Korean War veteran who went to seminary late in life, went to uh, seminary in New Orleans had a career as an electronics person. So growing up, I remember going to churches my grandfather pastored. And I remember going to Sunday school. And I remember going to vacation Bible school. And, you know, having a relatively uh, religious home. What I didn't have is a time where I internalized this truth and owned it. And it became transformational to me. I did have religious information I probably could have been relatively competitive at some sort of Bible trivia game. Wasn't transformational. So when the Bible talks about faith, it's more than just intellectual engagement with religious facts. It's more than that. In the Bible, a person who had faith was devout. It It was the same as saying they were committed committed, devout. So faith directs and redirects us. When we go further in Hebrews, we'll see that faith has exploits. That's the way that God describes faith. When he looks at all the lives of saints, he shows us the things they were engaged in, what they were doing, what their life was like. These people of faith, they had exploits that indicated they were people of faith. Their lives had that kind of alignment. So faith, when we think about what does the Bible mean by faith? What does belief mean? The Bible says it like this. Faith, it says faith without works is dead. It says without faith it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. 
diligence. Again, be diligent to enter that rest. But here, the Bible says it's diligence to follow him and to be rewarded by the one we're following. I heard really early as a Christian that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And I think that's true. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin so that a person couldn't say that they had faith unless that person also was repentant. So what is repentance? Well, it means to change our mind in the direction of our life and to turn, to turn away from where we've been going and to, and to go in a different direction, which is following Christ. I remember reading a lot after I became a follower of Christ in areas of apologetics. had a course by a guy named Norm Geisler. still have the book in my office. Archaeology, manners, and customs, those are the kind of things that when you take Bible college courses that you usually study. Archaeology is interesting because it affirms that the spade, when it goes into the dirt in places like Turkey and the Middle East, unearthed historic affirmation of the biblical history. And so that was helpful. I remember reading those kinds of things, Norm Geisler, I uh, remember somebody gave me, or either I bought, I can't remember, a copy of a book by Josh McDowell um, that was basically apologetics. And I had two volumes of that, and it included a lot of historical attestation of the uh, reality of Christianity in the first century. What's the name of that book, Josh McDowell? The Evidence, evidence That Demands a Verdict. Yeah, volume one and two. Very well researched, very good. And then you get familiar with philosophy, somewhat, epistemology, ontology. You start studying all, what does life mean? What's the meaning of being? And you, and you can, I think all of that is helpful, but out here somewhere a person has to say yes to Christ. I'd already said yes to Christ even before that. But a person can dig into apologetics and archaeology and philosophy and they can study history and they can do everything that they can to affirm that the biblical message is reliable and at some point you say yes to Jesus and experience transformation. It's not blind faith, it's sort of a leap of faith because you'll never have compelling enough evidence that all of your intellectual uh, quandaries or seeking is absolutely uh, verified. But at some point we say yes, we commit. That's what faith is. It's saying yes to Jesus. I said it through a prayer. My mom led me to pray at 24 years of age. God, my life is a big giant mess. I've done all this. For all this time, I need salvation. With everything I know, I commit myself to you. That was how I prayed, something like that. At my mom's table as a humbled, messed up 24-year-old. And that was faith to me. I don't know what it looks like for other people. I just know how it formed up in my life. So I had information. At some point, it had to become commitment. And it became commitment. And it became transformational. How do I know? Because I've been doing it for, how old am I now? A a very long time, 35 plus years. 
without stopping, I have been a worshiper. Sometimes not a great example, but a worshiper. Resting in what Jesus did for me. I like this quote from Pete Scazzaro, whose writings I enjoy a lot. He says, he said, Jesus revealed enough of himself to make faith possible, but hid just enough of himself to make faith necessary. Isn't that good? He said, Jesus revealed enough of himself to make faith possible, but hid just enough of himself to make faith necessary. You're going to have to commit out here at some point. Everything that you know and are to what your need is and what Jesus did to satisfy it. Faith takes humility and surrender. I was humbled when I came to faith in Christ. I realized, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm basically in the big scheme of things not able to rule even my life, much less the whole world. That was what it got to for me. Deep need that God answered when I cried out to him, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved. Leonard Sweet wrote a book called Out of the Question into the Mystery. That is the disposition of faith. Faith goes out of the question into the mystery. Okay, I understand as much as my little brain is going to permit me to, I either trust in Christ or I do not. Michael Card wrote a song in which he said, Give up all your pondering. Fall down on your knees. That's where we have to get to at some point. We, we give up all our pondering. I've known people whose um, intellect was a barrier to them for salvation, who just round and round and round with all the stuff and never could rest on faith. The Bible says at some point we surrender everything that we know. Now I know everything I can know or I'll keep trying to learn, but I trust Christ. And then how do we enter this rest in the imitation of God, in the imitation of God? Because that's what the passage says. Who else rested? God did. Six days he worked on the seventh day. He took a break. He wasn't tired, I don't think. The source of all the energy in the universe wasn't tired, but he did rest. And it says, just like God rested from his works, you have to rest from your works. And Jesus took naps. Isn't that cool? I want to be like Jesus. Take naps. He took naps in a boat in the middle of a storm, the Bible says. And when he woke up, he rebuked everybody for being in such a dither. What's wrong with all you people? How come you have no faith? That's what Jesus said. Why are you frightened? What little faith you have. God resting is not God inactive. God is at work. Jesus said so. My father's working and I'm working also, Jesus said. But we rest in his work. Martin Luther said, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. But guess what? God's not worried at all. One writer says about the passage that we've read and thought about that it brings home the solemn consequence of understating God's provision for his people. That's true. God has provided everything that you need. 
to be able to rest in him. And the problem that these people had again and again, the reason that God had to say today, if you won't harden your heart, then obey my voice, is because they never could learn to just trust him completely. The message paraphrases Jesus' description of rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty. We started with it this uh, this way. This is the way it paraphrases it. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. God keeps commending to his people rest in successive todays. He says, hey, once again, let me say to you, this is the day. You can enter rest today. You can learn to trust deeply today. He invites us to stop our obsessing and stressing. I know none of you ever do that. He invites us to let him have the will. We used to I used to do this children's camp. They banned these the kids would do a um um talent contest and they always wanted to sing Jesus take the will and they're like no more. Can't do that song anymore. But it is a good idea to let Jesus take the wheel, right? We're told in the psalm, be still and know that I am God. That psalm in one sentence is saying the same thing that we read in 11 verses. Be still and know that I am God. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to get comfortable with holding things in tension. Tension. Rest doesn't mean doing nothing. We, you know, if we think about that, okay, Brother Bobby just gave me permission to check out. No, that's not what it says in this passage. The tension here is that we do everything while we deeply appreciate God's sustaining reality. It doesn't mean do nothing. It means everything that you do, you trust in God's sustaining work. He already went before you to do it. Rest is a deep-seated understanding of our acceptance in Christ. We're accepted already by him. He already did everything for us. So we may be bothered sometimes, but we aren't destroyed. We may be tested, but we aren't untethered from hope. We may disappoint ourselves, but we aren't divorced from God's love. That's all good news. Good news was preached to them, not bad news. And we rest in Christ. I love this psalm. It says, forever and ever, God, you have been our home. I think you could think about that psalm for a long time and not uh, really discover everything that it implies. Forever and ever, you have been our home. But here's what home is like for me. When I get home today, I'm going to take my keys out of my pocket and stick them in the door. My key fits and open it. I'll probably put on comfier clothes than these clothes even. And I'll take my shoes off and I will be, somebody will be there, my wife who didn't feel well, to say, I'm glad you're home. Forever and ever, God, you've been our home. 
The Bible is trying to give us a picture of a, a reality of what, what God is like and who he is when it tells us things like that. It's basically saying trust him, rest in him, believe that everything that he's done for you is enough. I want to pray for us and we'll have a time of commitment. I think what we'll do today is just enjoy the song together because I've been trying to avoid touching people and stuff like that this morning. Although I think I'm okay. But uh, we'll sing a song together. Invite you. If you need to follow through, the way that you become a part of this congregation is really by submitting your testimony to us, making a request to become part of this congregation. I hope that you'll consider doing that. It's a serious step of that's that's important. And uh, But also maybe your reality is that you've never crossed over. Like when I crossed over and became a person of faith, I was baptized as a follower of Jesus. So I considered it my first step of obedience and, and uh, as a public step of obedience. And so maybe that's what you need to do as a public step of obedience is to become a baptized follower of Christ. We will gladly um, fill up that tub over there and stick that uh, pool heater in it, right, Scott, and get it up to a fairly desirable temperature so that you can be baptized as a follower of Christ. But there's a need that you have to respond. Trust that you'll do that. Feel free, please, to reach out to me or any of our other elders as a way of settling any um, questions or needs that you have. And would you stand with me? Father, I'm so grateful to you that we have the possibility of rest, that rest is a promise that you've made to us, that over and over again we see in Scripture that today is that day that... We just settle it. We say to you, we belong to you, and and we trust you. And I pray for anybody today that is still sort of out of sorts and, and stressed and not resting in the fact that Jesus Christ has become for us your amen and your yes and your final word. And so I pray that you help us today, God, and we trust you and love you and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.